This is Guns and Butter. This photograph, one of the backyard photographs, and there's a set here of four or even five, uh, was published on the cover of Life magazine and used to implicate this man in the crime. Uh, he's holding his trusty Manlicker Carcano, two communist newspapers, and the revolver with which he's alleged to have shot Officer J.D. Tippett. I mean, what could be a more convenient package of incriminating evidence? I'm Bonnie Faulkner. Today on Guns and Butter, Dr. James Fetzer. Today's show, The Assassination of America, Part 1. Jim Fetzer is McKnight Professor Emeritus at the University of Minnesota Duluth, an author and researcher. He organized, moderated, and gave the keynote address at the 50th John Fitzgerald Kennedy Commemoration in Santa Barbara, California, on November 22, 2013. This one-day event was hosted by the Oswald Innocence Campaign and featured cutting-edge research on the death of our 35th president. Featured were some of the best authors on some of the most important evidence that clarifies and illuminates that tragic event in Dallas on November 22, 1963. Today, in Part 1 of Jim Fetzer's keynote, The Assassination of America, he covers the setting up of the hit, the medical scams, and begins the framing of the patsy. Dr. James Fetzer. My name is Jim Fetzer, and I will be your host for this conference in which we observe and reflect upon the death of John F. Kennedy 50 years ago. Our conference is sponsored by the Oswald Innocence Campaign, which was founded by Ralph Kay, and we chose Santa Barbara not only because we knew Dallas would be locked down tighter than a drum, but because Jack and Jackie honeymooned here, and we therefore thought it most appropriate. In order to understand the assassination, which was a very complex event, it is useful to draw distinctions between the sponsors those who wanted JFK out and Lyndon Johnson in, the facilitators, and the mechanics, who were the actual shooters on the ground, their supervisors and coordinators. The sponsors in this case included the CIA, the Joint Chiefs, the Mafia, anti-Castro Cubans, the Eastern bankers who were tied in with the Fed, Texas oilmen, and a much-neglected aspect of the case, which I believe deserves a great deal more attention than it has heretofore received, the role of Israel. The key facilitators turn out to have been Lyndon Johnson in making it happen and J. Edgar Hoover in covering it up. Just to give you an inkling of Lyndon's role in all of this. He was described as the pivotal player in the work of our first speaker, Phil Nelson, who has authored a brilliant book, LBJ Mastermind of the Assassination of JFK, but where Billy Saul Estes, a Texas Wheeler dealer who knew these guys up close and personal, 
told William Raymond, a French investigative journalist, that Lyndon had sent Cliff Carter, his chief administrative aide, to Dallas to make sure all the arrangements were in place for the assassination, who is the primary individual who brought the sponsors together and who facilitated the assassination of his predecessor so that he could become president of all the people. Robert Groden not only maintains that the image in the doorway of the Alchin Six is Billy Lovelady, but that the Zapruder home movie of the assassination is authentic, as does Josiah Thompson, the author of Six Seconds in Dallas, one of the very first books I read when I became interested in the case. Today we have at least eight different lines of proof that the film is a fabrication used by taking authentic footage and combining it with other authentic footage in some cases, also by extensive editing, and then adding features that were not present in the original by way of special effects. The technique here with which film professionals are familiar is known as optical printing with special effects. So that among one of the important proofs is that Clint Hill, who was Jackie's designated Secret Service protector, rushed up to the limousine, climbed on the back where Jackie had gone after a chunk of Jack's skull and brains, pushed her back, lay across their bodies, peered into a fist-sized blowout at the back of JFK's head, turned to his colleagues and gave him a thumbs down, all before reaching the triple underpass, a position Clint Hill has maintained for 50 years now. We have more than 60 witnesses who reported seeing the limousine either slow dramatically or come to a complete halt, where it slowed dramatically as it came to a complete halt. But the halt was so striking, so profoundly indicting of the Secret Service for its complicity in the assassination that it had to be taken out. And when they took out the limo stop during which JFK was hit twice in the head, once from behind... He fell forward, Jackie eased him back and was looking him right in the face when he was hit a second time in the right temple by a frangible or exploding bullet that set up shockwaves that blew his brains out the left rear with such force that when the impacted motorcycle patrolman Bobby Hargis riding there, he initially thought he himself had been shot. They did not have time for Clint Hill to perform his actions and therefore had to remove them as well add additional points about how the film was altered, but I want you to appreciate that this is a profound issue and that individuals like Grodin and Thompson who maintain that they are experts on the assassination are in fact deceiving the American people. You know who I am, so don't need a reminder there. It's important to appreciate that in 1960, during the Democratic Convention in Los Angeles, Lyndon Johnson forced himself onto the ticket. Jack had already decided to extend the invitation to Stuart Symington to be his vice presidential nominee, but gave Symington overnight to think about it. Meanwhile, Bobby went to the Johnson suite to make a pro forma gesture, offering him the opportunity, which he never expected Lyndon to accept, but where Lyndon, using information he had received from J. Edgar Hoover, forced himself onto the ticket, telling Bobby that if he were not on the ticket, he would expose that JFK had had a liaison with a beautiful woman who turned out to be an East German spy. 
that he was suffering from Addison's disease and was not expected to live a long, healthy life, and that uh, he, as majority leader, were he not on the ticket, would block any legislative proposals coming down from the White House, which would be dead on arrival. Bobby and Jack kicked it around but couldn't figure out any way out of it and accepted Lennon as his running mate. Later, he would tell reporters that he had studied American history and discovered that one in four presidents had died in office and that he was a gambling man. But Lyndon Johnson was anything but. He only bet on sure things. Here we have the location in which the shooting took place. Visitors to Dealey Plaza are constantly astonished by the compactness of the area. We have here the, the county records building. We have the, the Dow Tex building. We have the book depository building. We have the grassy knoll area. We have four and five, the north and south end of the triple underpass, all of these being locations from which shots appear to have been fired. We have the location of James Tague, a distant bystander who was injured by a shot that missed. We have location number two where Abraham Zapruder was standing on a low colonnade and then one, the location at which the fatal shot, that is to say the right entry shot, is alleged to have been fired. But where David Mantic has concluded that actually it was further down Elm Street and not actually at that location. Here's Lee Oswald now wearing that very important shirt. Look how distinctive it is. Uh, showing his handcuffs, and of course, as you now know from Ralph and the other speakers, this is really the key to unpacking the identity of Doorman. We have more than 15 indications of Secret Service complicity in setting him up for the hit. Two agents were left behind at Love Field by, directed off by Emery Roberts, who was in charge of the presidential security detail. Here, Henry Ripka is responding, asking what in the world's going on, because this was completely unexpected. All of the vehicles were in the wrong order. The presidential limousine was set out front. It should have been in the middle. It would have been preceded by a flatbed truck carrying reporters with cameras and film, since this was a major political event. Uh, but it was canceled, too. Uh, the, the mayor and the vice president's lower-ranking dignitaries ought to have preceded the president. The, the president's military aide, who normally would have been seated in the front seat between the driver, William Greer, and the agent in charge, Roy Kellerman, was instead moved to the final vehicle in the motorcade, along with the president's personal physician, Admiral George Berkeley, putting him in the worst desirable position should the president need medical attention. Manhole covers were not covered. Open windows were not. The crowd was allowed to spill into the street, 8, 10, 12 deep. The motorcycle escort was cut down to four and directed not to ride forward of the rear wheels. One of the officers said it was the damnedest formation he'd ever seen. The driver, let me mention, was Sam Kenny, about whom more later. An agent on the right running board was John Reddy, and then Clint Hill was riding on the left. Here's a photograph I received just today from the motorcade in Houston the day before. Look at the presidential limousine. There are three motorcycles on each side. They're not held back behind the rear wheels, and there are several agents riding on the motorcade. While there are obvious lapses of security here, too, the, the motorcycle escort and the presence of the Secret Service agents on the vehicle obviously provides a great deal more security than would occur the following day.
Look at this. Can anyone in their right mind imagine this is appropriate security for the President of the United States? Not only is the crowd allowed to spill out into the street, but look at the bus. The 112th Military Intelligence Unit, which ought to have been distributed through the city for crowd control, was ordered to stand down over the adamant opposition of its commanding officer. But just look how easily a, a, a shooter in the bus could have taken out the President of the United States. The lack of security is ridiculous. The motorcade route was altered four days before the motorcade. It appears to have been done by John Connolly making a phone call to Kenny O'Donnell at the White House, or at least feigning to do so, based upon a change in the location where JFK would speak, from the Women's Forum, which was a very secure building that had been approved by the Secret Service, to the Trademark, which was not. It had lots of entrances and exits and balconies and was a very insecure building. But it was used to justify the turn off of Main Street onto Houston and then 110 degrees back onto Elm. Had there been a lone demented gunman on the sixth floor window, this would have been his best possible shots as the presidential limousine was approaching him, the body, the torso, the head coming closer and closer. Even a mediocre marksman like Oswald, if he had a halfway decent weapon, might have been able to kill the president under those conditions. Immediately after the shooting, there was no effort made to secure the area. Vehicles were allowed to drive through as though it were a normal day with normal traffic, with nothing unusual having taken place in Dealey Plaza. When the limousine got to the uh, Parkland Hospital, an agent took a bucket of water and a sponge and began to wash blood and brains out of the limousine. Just this past Monday... I interviewed a, a former neighbor of Sam Kenny, who had been the driver of the Secret Service limousine, and learned from him that Sam had confided that he was the agent who got the bucket of water and sponge and began to wash the blood and brains out of the limousine. He told the former neighbor that it was out of respect to JFK that he had done that, that he didn't want his blood and brains to be displayed that way, but it was obviously an improper act. It was a form of the destruction of evidence. But now we know who did it. The limousine itself would be sent back to Ford Motor Company already on Monday the 25th, the day of the formal state funeral. It was stripped down to bare metal. The windshield, which had a through-and-through -through bullet hole, was replaced. Douglas Weldon, uh, J.D. from Kalamazoo, Michigan, who did the most brilliant work on the limousine, actually tracked down the Ford official who had replaced the windshield, who confirmed that it had a through-and-through -through bullet hole. But clearly, this limousine belonged in the Smithsonian. It was a crime scene on wheels. And an order for its destruction had to have come from the highest levels of the American government, either J. Edgar Hoover or the new President Johnson himself. You're listening to author and researcher Dr. James Fetzer. Today's show, The Assassination of America, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Officially, both the Secret Service and, and the FBI concluded there had been three shots with three hits. This is the evening of the day of the assassination. They believe that JFK had been hit in the back about five and a half inches below the collar to the right of the spinal column, that John Connolly had been hit in the back by a separate shot, and that JFK had been hit in the back of the head by a shot that had killed him. 
It would only be when it turned out that a shot had missed and injured a distant bystander that the commission itself faced the unpalatable choice between acknowledging there had been a fourth shot or subtracting one as having been amiss and seeking to account for all the wounds based upon only two bullets, which of course led to the ingenious contrivance known as the magic bullet theory. This is James Tagg who was injured by that shot that missed. There's the indication that another shot may have been fired from the top of the county records building that, that hit in the vicinity of a manhole cover. Another bullet missed and hit the chrome strip over the windshield. Here's Gerald Posner's depiction of the magic bullet theory. He actually doesn't even have the entry location at the right position, uh, probably because of all the evidence I'll show that, in fact, that entry five and a half inches below the collar was correct. But in any case, here he is depicting the bullet passing through the president's neck, exiting his throat, going into the back of John Connolly, shattering a rib, exiting his chest, hitting his right wrist and impacting, winding up in his left thigh. But... We have the jacket the man was wearing, which was left behind at Parkland Hospital in violation of autopsy protocol. It shows a hole about five and a half inches below the collar. Therefore, not at the location specified by the government. This is a drawing done by a Navy artist who was not allowed to see the body but was told what to draw. Here's the shirt he was wearing, which shows the hole at the same vicinity. David W. Mandick, MD, PhD, of whom you will hear more, who is the leading expert on the medical evidence and who has made at least 10 visits to the National Archive, asked a member of the staff with similar chest dimensions to JFK to put on the shirt and the jacket and determine that the hole in the shirt is ever slightly lower than the hole in the jacket. This is an autopsy diagram by J. Thornton Boswell, who was assisting Commander James Hume in performing the autopsy. Notice it locates a wound at the back at that location, about five and a half inches below the collar to the right of the spinal column. And if you look here where this arrow occurs, you'll see that this diagram was verified by Admiral George Berkeley, the president's personal physician. Plus, we have a sketch made by an FBI agent. Two of them were present during the autopsy, Siebert and O'Neill. Siebert drew a sketch that shows the wound at the back lower than the wound in the throat, suggesting that a shot fired at a downward angle that entered there would be very unlikely to exit at the level of the neck. Admiral Berkeley himself executed a death certificate on JFK in which he observed that he was killed by a massive wound to the head, which was left vague, but he was very specific about another wound, which the president had suffered in the back at the level of the third thoracic vertebrae, which corresponds to that same location. Even the Warren Commission staff had concluded that he had been shot there. Notice here in the stand-in for JFK with that small patch where the bullet is supposed to have entered his head, and then the much larger patch on the back. My favorite photograph from the history of the study of the assassination shows a young Arlen Specter with a pointer uh, specifying the trajectory the magic bullet would have had to have taken. And if you look down below his hand, you'll see the patch on the stand-in, which means that a photograph that's intended to illustrate the magic bullet theory actually refutes it. You would think that the Warren Commission staff were the only American citizens who didn't realize that JFK was riding in a Lincoln limousine. 
They did the reconstruction in the Secret Service Cadillac, and because of the differences in their dimensions, distance from the ground, spacing of the seats, and so forth, their reconstruction had no forensic significance. It turns out, among the very first releases from the Assassination Records Review Board, a five-person civilian panel created by an act of Congress in the wake of the resurgence of interest in the case generated by Oliver Stone's film JFK, which had the authority to declassify documents and records held by the Secret Service, the CIA, the FBI, and so forth, that among their very first releases was documents showing that Gerald Ford, then a Young Commission member, had had the wound redescribed from his uppermost back, which was already an exaggeration, to the base of the neck in order to make the magic bullet theory more plausible. David W. Mantic, whom I have mentioned before, took a patient with similar chest and neck dimensions to JFK and created a CAT scan. He plotted the official trajectory and discovered that it is in fact anatomically impossible because cervical vertebrae intervene. So that as long as Jack had a backbone, and we all know he had plenty of backbone, the magic bullet theory isn't even possible. I have written uh, an article about CBS's latest endorsement of the magic bullet theory where they featured a father and son who explained how they modeled the neck using a block of soap that was a good replication of the musculature of the neck. But as I point out in my article, the block of soap contained no cervical vertebrae. Here's a diagram, once you know where the bullet actually entered, of the preposterous behavior of this, of this bullet, where below you see a photograph of the bullet found on a stretcher that is alleged to be the magic bullet. When Robert Shaw, MD, who was caring for John Connolly, was told this was the bullet that was supposed to have done all this damage, he said it was most unlikely because he'd removed more lead from John Connolly's wrist than was missing from this bullet. To my astonishment, when I interviewed the former neighbor of Sam Kenny, just this past Monday, he told me that Sam Kenny had found the bullet in the back seat, this very bullet, which apparently had worked its way out of JFK's back since it was that shallow shot, and they had taken it into Parkland Hospital and lay it on a stretcher, which resolves one of the heretofore mysteries of the assassination, namely where had it come from, where most of us had, had supposed that Jack Ruby had planted it as misleading evidence but apparently it was done by Sam Kenny instead. Unpacking the medical scams are really the key to understanding the assassination. Here is the acting press secretary, Malcolm Kilduff, announcing the president's death at 1.30. The assassination had taken place at 12.30. He had been pronounced dead by Kemp Clark, the director of neurosurgery, at 1 o'clock. And when Malcolm Kilduff announced his death, he pointed to his right temple, explaining it was a simple matter of a bullet right through the head, and attributing that finally to Admiral George Berkeley, the president's personal physician. Shortly thereafter, Kemp Clark on the left and Malcolm Perry on the right, who had performed a simple tracheostomy incision through the wound in the throat, held what is known as the Parkland Press Conference, during which Malcolm Perry three times described the wound as a wound of entry, that the bullet was coming at him. 
The transcript of the Parkland press conference would never be provided to the Warren Commission, no doubt because it contradicts their findings. Here's a drawing of the wound before and after the tracheostomy incision provided to me by Charles Crenshaw, MD, who was present in trauma room one when JFK was being cared for and two days later was responsible for the treatment of his alleged assassin, Lee Oswald. Uh, This wound and the wound to the right temple were widely reported on radio and television that afternoon. If you go to NBC, you know, see it now, where they replay this footage, you'll find Chet Huntley and another anchor reporting that the president had suffered a wound to the throat, that it was a wound of entry, that he had also a wound to his right temple, and that been a massive blowout at the back of the head, attributing that to Admiral Berkeley. Later in the afternoon, as stories start to trickle in about the assassin having been above and behind, Frank McGee, who is nobody's fool, says, this is incongruous. How can the man have been shot from in front, from behind? Which, of course, was a conundrum that the Warren Commission confronted, which it would resolve by reversing the trajectories. Here's a reason why David Lifton, in his book, Best Evidence, published in 1980, believed that the body had been subjected to alteration. Notice the throat wound there. It's not the small, clean puncture wound. Bob Livingston, a world authority on the human brain, who was also an expert on wound ballistic, who was a scientific director of two of the institutes of national health located across the street from Bethesda Naval Hospital, had earlier in the day called... James Humes, who was to perform the autopsy, to tell him of the report of what was clearly an entry wound to the throat and advised Humes that therefore the neck must be dissected very carefully because, and this is so ironic in retrospect, if there were any evidence of shots from behind, then there had to be multiple assassins and therefore a conspiracy. Humes, however, feigned not having any knowledge, feigned ignorance of any wound to the throat until after the autopsy had been completed when he then finally had a conversation with Malcolm Perry and learned of the throat wound. In the meanwhile, he had called Bob Livingston and asked him what would the throat wound look like if it had been a wound of exit. And Bob described that it would be rather open and jagged with rough edges. That seems to be what we have here, which I believe, therefore, Commander Humes did to make the wound that was, in fact, a wound of entry appear to be a wound of exit. Something very curious about this photograph, by the way, is that JFK's eyes are open. Chuck Crenshaw was the last physician to observe the body before it was wrapped in sheets, the head in gauze, and placed into the bronze ceremonial casket, and he had closed JFK's eyes before that was done. On the right, you see a photograph that the House Select Committee on Assassinations medical panel would endorse, where you can see the skull flap above the ear, which actually was blown open at the time, but there's no massive blowout at the back of the head, raising serious questions about how serious the HSCA was in conducting its investigation of the medical evidence. Here, after all, is the way the blowout appeared when Charles Crenshaw drew it, And I like it because it's uh, both from behind and from the side, so you can see the degree of cavitation that was created to the skull of JFK. He told me repeatedly that it was the size of your fist when you double it up. So if you just take your fist, double it up, and place it at the back of your head, you have a very good idea of what we're talking about and what was observed by the Parkland physicians. 
who, physician after physician, reported extruding cerebellar as well as cerebral brain tissue. Now, this is one physician after another. We have the reports of seven or eight here. Now, the cerebellum turns out to be a compact part of the brain at the base, as you can see on the left diagram. It's very distinctive in its physiology, and no first-year medical student would confuse eviscerated cerebellar from eviscerated cerebral brain tissue. You can see on the right, of course, the location of the parts of the skull in relation to the cerebellum. The brain, shown in diagrams and photographs at the National Archives, where the original brain is missing, but which may have an innocuous explanation, shows a brain that's virtually completely intact. So here you have a world authority on the human brain reviewing the reports from Parkland, all experienced with gunshot victims because Dallas was at the time perhaps the homicide capital of the world, and noticing that there's a completely intact cerebellum. In fact, even the cerebrum is virtually completely intact, whereas the man actually had half his brains blown out in Dealey Plaza. He therefore was obligatorily forced to conclude that the diagrams and photographs in the National Archives cannot be of the brain of John Fitzgerald Kennedy. Now, you or I might have drawn that inference if we thought about the difference in the description between the Parkland physicians and these diagrams, but isn't it striking when that conclusion is drawn by a world authority on the human brain? You're listening to author and researcher Dr. James Fetzer. Today's show, The Assassination of America, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. So here is what that same artist was asked to draw of the effect of the shot fired from behind that entered low on the back, and it's alleged to have blown out the top of his head, very different from that fist-sized wound at the back. Here we have two diagrams, interestingly, from Robert Grodin that appear to be fakes. I mean, look at the amount of hair there. Look at all the goop, okay? This was just not comparable with what we see from other autopsy photographs. Look at this. Look how short and clean the hair is there. These, of course, are the HSCA. Recall that skull flap I mentioned before on the right. In the photograph on the left, by the way, the bullet entry wound they claim had entered at the crown of the head is not present in the photograph. And we know something is wrong here, that these can't be authentic, either if the man had a fist-sized blowout at the back of the head. But what's so interesting about this is that when the HSCA deposed Commander Humes, at our request, we asked whether the patient had been given a shampoo and a haircut during the autopsy, to which he replied, no, 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 no. Now, here's a big chunk of occipital bone. That is a bone from the section of the skull at the back of the head that was discovered by a medical student by the name of Billy Harper the day after the assassination in the grass to the left of where the limousine had been, which he took to relatives who were on the staff of the Methodist Medical Hospital who photographed it, studied it, and concluded it had come from the back of the head. Suppose you juxtapose that with the HSCA. I mean, it's not as though the Harper fragment is a mystery, but their reconstruction of the wound to the head with a small entry wound at the top isn't even consistent and is therefore refuted by the Harper fragment. I mean, how sloppy can you get? 
Here's another diagram of the blowout from Dr. Robert McClellan, also at Parkland, which is widely regarded as very close to the way the wound appeared. And we have dozens of witnesses who reported seeing the blowout at the back of the head. Notice how they're using their hand to locate where that wound took place. They are from Parkland, some are from Dealey Plaza, others are even from uh, Bethesda, and look at the unanimity of their descriptions. Here, however, well, this is a pre-mortem, in other words, while still alive, x-ray of JFK on the left, uh, where I inverted a Cecil Stoughton photograph of, of Jack to make it easy to see how the x-ray of the skull exists in relation to the skull itself. Notice the lack of great contrast in the authentic x-ray here, the pre-mortem on the left. When David Mantic, who is both an MD from Michigan and a PhD in physics from Wisconsin and board certified in radiation oncology, which is a treatment of cancer using x-ray therapy, and who is therefore an expert on x-rays, was about to enter the National Archives with the permission of Burke Marshall, from the Yale Law School, the Kennedy family attorney, he told me that he thought he would find both evidence of a second shot to the head, but also proof that the autopsy had been altered. And I told him we'd have what we were looking for either way. Well, the first thing that he noticed was this contrast in the x-ray on the left, which is the lateral cranial x-ray taken from the right-hand side was a striking amount of contrast between light and dark. He told me it was like on the order of 500 times greater than the normal contrast you would find in an authentic x-ray. And when he applied a simple technique from physics known as optical densitometry, which enables you to measure the amount of light that passes through an x-ray to determine the relative thickness of the object whose exposure to x-ray created the image, because the, the thicker or denser the object, the more radiation it absorbs, the less radiation that hits the x-ray. And therefore, when it's developed, if it was very thick and absorbed a lot of x-ray, it's a very light image on the x-ray, or virtually white. He discovered there was an area here, you can see it, which he called area P for patch, that had been created by an object much too dense to be human bone, so that unless JFK was a bonehead, unless the back of his head was nothing but solid bone, this was uh, an artificial contrivance that was intended to conceal the blowout at the back of the head. Interestingly, although in early frames the blowout to JFK's head had been blacked over when the film was reconstructed, it occurred to me that perhaps those working on the film were so intent on covering it up in early frames that they overlooked that it might be visible in later frames. And in fact, in frame 374, I discovered you can actually see the blowout. It's that bluish-gray matter there at the back. You can see that pinkish extension. That's the skull flap. And if you compare it with the Mantix X-ray, you'll see there's a very high degree of correspondence. They both have the appearance of like a cashew on its side. But this is the actual blowout that JFK suffered, which is visible in frame 374 of the Zapruder film, which all by itself, when, when juxtaposed with the earlier frames, 314, 15, 16, 17, after the dramatic blowout at 313, proves that the film has been altered in that simple way. The actual extent of the alteration was considerably greater. 
But this is as simple as possible proof because it means the film is not even internally consistent and therefore cannot be authentic. Here is an anterior-posterior front-to-rear x-ray where David Mantic discovered that there's a metallic slice. It's a small circle indicated by the arrow with a bite at about 5 o'clock. It's a 6.5 millimeter metallic slice. Even the pathologist admitted this was not visible on the x-ray when the x-ray was taken and they first reviewed it. It was added in an obvious effort to implicate the obscure caliber Manlicher Carcano, this World War II weapon that Lee Oswald was alleged to have used and which appears to explain its choice. Oswald could have obtained a superior weapon on any street corner in Dallas without showing any identification, but it would not have left a paper trail, and it would not have been so easy to implicate in the crime as this World War II weapon with an odd caliber that was actually known then as the humanitarian rifle for never harming anyone on purpose. Here's a distribution of metallic particles in the skull that David had suspected he would find that are indicative of a second shot to the head. And indeed, they appear to have been caused by the bullet that entered the right temple, which, as I have mentioned, was a frangible or exploding bullet that distributed particles throughout the skull while setting up shock waves that blew his brains out the back of his head. This is the summary of the report, the observations of the mortician, Thomas Evan Robinson, who spent more time with the body than anyone else, Notice what he describes, a large gaping hole at the back of the head. At this point, he believed that the head was filled with plaster of Paris. A smaller wound in the uh, right temple, that's the wound of entry. Below that, he talks about a uh, crescent-shaped flap down, blow out three inches. That's the skull flap he's talking about. Approximately two small shrapnel wounds in the face that he patched with wax. He discovered their existence when embalming because the fluid was leaking from the face. David Mantic quite brilliantly inferred that those shrapnel wounds were caused by tiny shards of glass that were released when the bullet that hit JFK in the throat passed through the windshield. And, of course, he observes wound in back, five to six inches below the shoulder to the right of the spinal column. He observes that the adrenal glands were missing, and last, he says, no swelling or discoloration to the face, which means that he died instantly. So we have the absurd situation that at Parkland, you see this fist-sized blowout to the back of the head, but that at Bethesda, and David Lifton was the one who noticed this, the wound has grown enormously. And it is described with mathematical precision in the autopsy report. And then you have the House Select Committee contracting it to a small hole at the top of the head. So knowing Cyril Wecht, the celebrated coroner for Allegheny County, personally, who had served on the medical panel, I called Cyril and I said, Cyril, I said, how did the HSC accommodate or account for the difference between the massive wound described in the autopsy report from Bethesda and the small wound, this contraction, that you, you and your panel endorsed? And Cyril said to me, I'll have to check my notes. I was dumbfounded. Even more astonishing, however is this very large wound to the back of the head. When the Assassination Records Review Board deposed Thomas Evan Robinson, the mortician, and asked him about a sketch 
that Boswell had made showing dotted lines around the skull that correspond to this massive missing skull, he said, oh no, the doctors did that. While he was present in the mortuary with, with, with Ed Reed, who was a photographer for the Bethesda Naval Hospital, Commander Humes took a cranial saw to the skull of JFK and enlarged the wound to these extent to try to make it look more like the effect of a shot fired from behind. So that David Lifton, who had brilliantly inferred that there had been some alteration to the body, including where he'd found a passage suggesting there'd been surgery to the head, has been vindicated and found to be exactly right. And I say, if anyone tries to tell you that the JFK story is on the up and up, and that Oswald was a lone demanded shooter, ask them to account for this. Ask them to account for this. Larry Sabato, who's a famous political commentator, has a book on JFK in which he's defending the Warren Commission. He's on the faculty at the University of Virginia. I taught at the University of Virginia twice. So I wrote a letter to the editor of the Cavalier Daily, which they published with a heading, JFK, Truth or Conspiracy. And they used this because I'd included it as the front piece. And I said, you know, if, if Sabato wants to defend the Warren Commission, how can he account for this? And then I went on to explain how the magic bullet is hopelessly indefensible, all the evidence we have. I mean, believe me, the evidence I reviewed for you, I presented at Cambridge during an international conference and then published in an, in an international peer-reviewed journal. You can download it yourself under the heading, Reasoning About Assassinations. Because once you understand that the magic bullet theory is impossible, then we have to account for the wound to the throat and the, the wounds to Conley on the basis of other shots and other shooters, which means we can establish the existence of a conspiracy merely by determining where JFK was shot in the back, which is a point about which I would maintain we know with a higher degree of certainty than anything else about the assassination, which means it's a completely reliable basis for inferring the existence of conspiracy in the assassination of JFK. So here we have it. Look at this. Here's a comparison. You see that blowout, the way it was described by Dr. McClellan, by Dr. Crenshaw at the top. Then at the bottom, you have the Mantic x-rays in his study, the Area P, and then look at that compared to frame 374, and you see that high degree of correspondence between Area P for patch in the x-ray and the actual blowout. You're listening to author and researcher Dr. James Fetzer. Today's show... The Assassination of America, Part 1. I'm Bonnie Faulkner. This is Guns and Butter. Uh, the CIA had both photographs and audio tapes of the individual who presented himself at the Cuban embassy in Mexico City to obtain a visa to travel to Cuba, which is often presented as proof that Oswald was in cahoots with Castro to take out JFK. But the fact of the matter is, here are photographs of the man who was at the Cuban embassy. He looks nothing even remotely like Lee Oswald. And J. Edgar Hoover was well aware, too, that the CIA had determined that the voice on the audio tapes they had transcribed from phone calls was not Lee Oswald, so that J. Edgar Hoover sent a notice to all of his stations that someone was impersonating Lee Oswald in, in Mexico City. I say 
If that is all you knew about the assassination, that someone had been impersonating Lee Oswald in Mexico City, you would understand it had been a conspiracy. I mean, the evidence that multiple individuals were involved in framing an innocent man is simply overwhelming. Here's more. This is Lieutenant Day removing the alleged Manlicker Carcano, the supposed assassin's weapon from the book depository. Interestingly, if you look carefully, there's what appears to be a clip at the bottom, which should not be there. The Manlicker Carcano is loaded with a six-round clip inserted from the top, but it's designed so that the clip falls out when the last round is chambered. There were no six rounds found at the book depository in the alleged assassin's lair, and there was a a round that was chambered, presumably the last, and therefore the, the fact that the clip was missing was very stunning evidence. Not only was the clip missing, but if you look down below to the left bottom, you'll see only two expended shell cartridges were found on the sixth floor at the assassin's lair, and one unexpended cartridge on the far right. Here's another. This is an FBI evidence photograph showing two expended and one unexpended shell for the Manlicker Carcano, which means these guys were really amateurs in conducting a frame. It appears that the Dallas Police Department took the lead role in setting up Oswald as as the patsy, and they didn't do a very good job of it. Here's the Manlicker Carcano that was entered into evidence in Dallas, but all the evidence at one point was transferred to Washington which was a bit of a stretch because the only crime that had been committed was murder. It was a local offense, and only Dallas had the jurisdiction to investigate the crime. Here's a man, Licker Carcano, that was entered into evidence in Washington, D.C., and guess what? They're not the same. What appears to be the case is that, as I shall explain, no shots were fired from the sixth-floor window of the book depository, but three were fired using a Manlicker Carcano from the Dal Tex building, which appears to have been the only unsilenced weapon in order to create the acoustical oppression of three shots having been fired. Uh, but in order to make a match between any ballistics that might arise from the body and the actual weapon that had fired them, they made a substitution of the fake Manlicker Carcano that hadn't been fired at all from the book depository for the one that had been used to fire three shots from the Dal Tex. This happened, by the way, in the case of uh, Bobby Kennedy's assassination. The weapon that Sirhan Sirhan had used to unload eight shots, none of which hit Bobby Kennedy, uh, was initially entered into evidence. Uh, but Bobby was actually killed by four shots fired from behind. In particular, one entered his right ear about an inch and a half away. Sirhan was never anywhere in that vicinity. But later, another weapon was introduced, and it appears to have been the weapon that was used to shoot Bobby Kennedy from behind, rather than the one that Sirhan had in hand, which was merely a distraction. So this is a fairly common practice when the government is involved in in framing a patsy. This photograph, one of the backyard photographs, and there's a set here of four or even five, Uh, was published on the cover of Life magazine and used to implicate this man in the crime. Uh, He's holding his trusty man, Licker Carcano, two communist newspapers, and the revolver with which he's alleged to have shot Officer J.D. Tippett. I mean, what could be a more convenient package of incriminating evidence? 
But when you notice up close, as Ralph, in fact, mentioned during his presentation, the chin is the wrong chin. It's a block chin. It's a block chin, and there's an insert line. In fact, Lee Oswald told Will Fritz that someone had pasted his face on someone else's body, that he knew something about photography, and eventually he'd be able to prove it. Well, he was completely right, and we've been able to prove it in multiple ways. It's also true that the fingertips are cut off on the hand holding the newspaper. Jack White, legendary photo and film analyst, realizes newspapers have known dimensions so that if you laid them off as an internal ruler, you could determine the height of the individual here. This person was only uh, five foot six, too short to be Lee Oswald, who wearing the shoes would be 5'10". So either they used someone who was too short to be Oswald, or what is more likely, when they faked the photographs, they made the newspapers too large. Here is a combination of overlaying a couple of these photographs. Although the poses are different and the stance is different, the face and its expression and details are exactly the same, which is a photographic impossibility. Uh, so that Jim Mars, the author of Crossfire, and I co-authored an article entitled Framing the Patsy, the Case of Lee Harvey Oswald, in which we went through the backyard photographs and demonstrated with point after point after point that they were evident fabrications. Indeed, here is a map that was found in the desk of a detective for the Dallas Police Department. He, he explained it by claiming he was only trying to see if it could be done, which is a most unlikely explanation, but the best he could do at the time. Here we have the claim that the lone gunman, uh, after uh, killing the President of the United States, uh, raced across a warehouse uh, floor, stashed his trusty man, Liquor Carcano, down four flights of stairs and into the lunchroom for what? To have a Coke? But my contention is that if, if Oswald had actually committed the crime, if he had got into the lunchroom, the adrenaline would have been pumping so hard he could not have got the nickel into the machine, much less press the lever to get a bottle of Coke. And yet when the police officer, Marion Baker, confronted him there within 90 seconds after the assassination, he held him in his sights until Roy Truly, a supervisor, came over to confirm that this was an employee who belonged there. They both wrote in their handwritten statements, which were actually published in the 888-page summary report known as the Warren Report, that he wasn't agitated, he wasn't perspiring, he was acting perfectly normally, and truly added, a bit startled perhaps, as anyone might be, to suddenly find themselves confronted by an officer with a drawn revolver, and Officer Baker added he was drinking a Coke. Now, you know, I think it's as likely that you would write he was drinking a Coke if he wasn't drinking a Coke as you'd write that he was wearing a green beret if he wasn't wearing a green beret. Evidently, when the Warren Commission tried to reconstruct this sequence, it took too much time, so they asked him later to strike that he was drinking a Coke. But so far as I know, every, every serious student of the assassination agrees that he was drinking a Coke, probably actually a Dr. Pepper. It wasn't a Coca-Cola, but he liked Dr. Pepper. Plus here, notice, co-workers observed him in and around the lunchroom at 10 minutes of 12. That was Bill Shelley. At 12 by Eddie Piper. At 12.15 by Carolyn Arnold. As late as 12.25, Carolyn Arnold again. She was the executive secretary of the vice president of the book depository. There's no reason to doubt their reports. So it's a fantasy scenario that Oswald would suddenly have raced upstairs, you know, assassinated the president, then raced back downstairs into the lunchroom to be confronted by the motorcycle patrolman within 90 seconds. Instead, it appears that he, as well as his other co-workers, stepped out into the front 
into the front doorway of the book depository to watch the motorcade. Oswald was also falsely claimed to have shot a police officer. Notice he he returned to his home apparently using a bus and a taxi. Uh, And after the bus got bogged down in traffic, there was a little old lady who wanted to use a cab, so our fleeing assassin offered the little old lady the cab. When he got back to his rooming house, he got his jacket and his revolver, and a police car came by and honked twice. I take it that was a signal for him to proceed up Crawford and go to the Texas Theater, which would have been a direct route. The idea that he would have gone far, far out of his way, as shown here, to shoot a police officer uh, three times in the body and then once in the head and then open the, the, the cylinder of his revolver and remove the shell casings is simply absurd. In fact, four casings were found at the scene. They had been ejected from automatics. There were two Western, uh, two Remington of two different makes, and the first officer on the scene initialed them. Later, there was a change in the evidence, and now we had four revolver casings, three of one make and one of the other. A woman across the street, Aquila Clemens, said two men had shot Tippett, and neither of them looked like Lee Oswald. So, of course, she was not called to testify. In fact, the shooting of Tippett occurred about 1.10. Oswald appears to have been in the theater about 1.05. So there's really no possibility of taking that story seriously. They claim they found his wallet there. Isn't that remarkably convenient? You, you, you murder a policeman and then you, what, take out your wallet so they'll be sure to know who you were? I mean, this, this once again is a reflection of the original amateur hour being performed by the Dallas police attempting to frame an innocent man. Here's a photograph of, uh, of Officer Tippett. Uh, the question has been what was he even doing in the area because it wasn't his normal uh, uh, walk. Uh, I, I take it that he may have been at the periphery of the assassination, that he may have been escorting some of the, those who were involved away from the scene, uh, but that they shot him uh, when they got into this particular area. Probably, it would appear, to blame it on Oswald. After all, they would have to plan ahead to be able to plant his wallet. Notice what's interesting about this booking photograph is he's not wearing that shirt. Now, this is really an indication that they were aware of the importance of the shirt in identifying him in front of the book depository. And as Ralph has explained, of course, he had already said to Will Fritz that he was out front with uh, Bill Shelley during the shooting. I'll talk more about that photograph. But here is the arrest report on Lee Oswald. This is fascinating. It says, this man shot and killed President John F. Kennedy and Officer J.D. Tippett. He also shot and wounded Governor John Conley. Now, this is an arrest report. The man has entered the theater allegedly for not paying for his ticket by an extremely zealous uh, book uh, shoe store salesman. He, he, he finds something suspicious about this man who goes up to the theater and we believe actually did pay for his ticket and went inside, but that another person who looked a lot like Oswald was used to come and give the pretext for the shoe salesman to call the police. For, for not paying for his ticket, there was a massive response in force, at least 12 squad cars and multiple detectives. I mean, it's simply absurd. And when, when Oswald was brought out, you know, somebody in the crowd said, who was this? And one of the detectives said, Oswald. But he had two kinds of identification for Alec Heidel and for Lee Oswald. At that point, they would have had no idea who he was, and yet they could conveniently identify him all, all together when a bystander calls out. 
In addition, he was given a nitrate test. This is really fascinating. He passed nitrate. He had no residues on his cheeks, which means he hadn't fired a rifle of a carbine. Plus, he had nitrates on his hands, which was doubly exculpatory. If he had washed the nitrates off his face, he would at the same time have washed them off his hands, which means he had not only not washed them off his hands, but their presence on his hands was easily explicable because nitrates are in printer's ink. He was working in a book depository, moving books that are printed in ink, so that his acquisition of nitrates on his hands was just a matter of the normal performance of his tasks. been listening to Dr. James Fetzer. Today's show has been The Assassination of America, Part 1. A former Marine Corps officer, Jim Fetzer has published widely on the theoretical foundations of scientific knowledge, computer science, artificial intelligence, cognitive science, and evolution and mentality. McKnight Professor Emeritus at the University of Minnesota Duluth, he has also conducted extensive research into the assassination of JFK, the events of 9-11, and the plane crash that killed Senator Wellstone. The founder of Scholars for 9-11 Truth, his latest books include The Evolution of Intelligence, The 9-11 Conspiracy, Render Unto Darwin, and The Place of Probability in Science. Jim Fetzer's most recent articles can be found at www.veteranstoday.com. That's veteranstoday.com forward slash author forward slash Fetzer. He co-edits two websites, assassinationresearch.com, that's assassinationresearch.com, and assassinationscience.com, that's assassinationscience.com. He can be reached by email at jfetzer at d.umn.edu. That's j-f-e-t-z-e-r at d.umn.edu. Guns and Butter is produced by Bonnie Faulkner and Yara Mako. To leave comments or order copies of shows, email us at blfaulkner at yahoo.com. That's b-l-f-a-u-l-k-n-e-r at yahoo.com or faulkner at gunsandbutter.org Visit our website at www.gunsandbutter.org Yo, these are some serious times that we live in, G and our new world order is about to begin You know what I'm saying? Now the question is Are you ready for the real revolution which is the evolution of the mind? If you seek, then you shall find that we all come from the divine the words of wisdom that are written on the walls of life, then universally we will stand and divided we will fall because love conquers all. You understand what I'm saying? This is a call for all you sleeping souls. Wake up and take control of your own cipher and be on the lookout for the spirit sniper trying to steal your life. You know what I'm saying? Look with this eye yourself for peace. Give thanks. Live life. Release. You dig me? You got me? <laughs>